Chapter 20 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 A Desert Ride, Blythe to Coachella Valley. In reaching Blythe, three sides of my proposed circuit had been completed, and I now turned westward toward the Coachella Valley where it began. There was no difficulty about waking early, the 16th of September, for the Mexican half of Blythe was up at dawn and making no secret of its patriotic fervor. However, we had only a short march before us for the day, so made a late start, spending the morning in a round of gaiety and gunpowder, and joining wholeheartedly in the shouts of Viva Mexico that all but drowned the strains of the Mexican national hymn a fine stirring air even when screeched on a broken-winded phonograph a very few miles took us beyond the limit to the cultivated land then at a slight rise we were again on the characteristic wide mesa broken by isolated mountain ranges far in the south the pinnacles of el picacho were unmistakable though mere ghosts of hazy blue near at hand to the north rose the purple ridge of the marias shading into the dimmer ironwoods and those into the long wavering chain of the chuckawallas around or through which i was to find a way a glance behind showed a wilderness of uneasy outlines that stood for arizona ten miles out i found the ranch of a solitary settler who had sunk a well and obtained a flow of water small indeed but enough to make a promising experiment with dates spineless cactus and other likely novelties here I put up for the night, but gained the unwelcome news that water was not to be had at Ford's Well some twenty miles out, where I had meant to make my next camp. This threw me on a waterless stretch of about forty miles, either to Grundike's Well or Corn Springs. As an alternative, I could strike across to Wiley's Well and then by an old road along the southern base of the Chuckawallas. The latter plan involved two thirty-mile stretches between water but seemed preferable on Kawea's account. I resolved on the shorter spans. As I was saddling up next morning, a prospector chanced along. He was driving a buckboard with two small mules and was bound for Blythe, having come by way of Wiley's Well. Was I going that way? he asked. I told him, yes. How long rope have you got? he inquired. Forty feet, I said, indicating Kawea's picket rope. That won't do you no good, he remarked. It's sixty foot down to water. If I hadn't had them two long tie ropes, I'd have starved when I got there yesterday. Some blank son of etc. has stolen the rope off the windlass. I hope he'll die raving mad for a drop of water right where he can see it. Like I might have done. Roping up's too good for that kind of dirt. Perfectly true, for a more scoundrelly trick can hardly be imagined as cold-blooded as if a sailor should cut the lifeline that has just been his salvation. It illustrates the chances that lie in wait for the desert traveler and keep him anxious from time he leaves one waterhole till he reaches the next. So far as we were concerned, we could have returned to this ranch, but in the case of a man arriving at that well in bad straits for water, perhaps having used his last supply freely in expectation of surely renewing it here, death would be a not unlikely outcome. I changed my plan perforce, but stayed over for the day or so to make an earlier start the next morning. 
my accommodating rancher had a fair store of hay purchasable at a price and i had bought a few feeds of barley from blythe so kawea passed the time profitably while i indulged myself with such ancient magazine literature as the house afforded by daybreak we were on the march the air was cool and kawea seemed to know that he was headed for home though home was well over a hundred miles away we had knocked off a few miles before the sun came up and when it rose i wheeled and sat enjoying as i don't often find possible the magnificence of the desert sunrise i felt i could afford to do soul justice now that a few days would bring an end to my journey moreover the equinox was at hand and i could almost pity the bully now that his power was waning so it was fine to watch each rift or ridge of mountain flush and full of life as it was overtaken by the tide of light to note the kindling of beacon beyond beacon and in fancy to see it carried on from coxcombs to cottonwoods then to santa rosa san jacinto and san gorgonio and thence along the great sierra wall where snowfield glacier and many an icy lake i knew would start to a sudden glory of rose or sapphire i saw the forest stir in the wind of dawn the deer go down to the brook the cyclamens and gentle lavender daisies awake and smile as when we awoke and smiled together suddenly i asked myself why what am i doing here raking among the bones of the earth i have wasted a precious summer and what is worth gone back on my friends a bad bad mistake well at least i know one more corner of my inheritance rounding a spur of the ironwood mountains sometimes called the mccoys after one out of several worthies of that name who figure in the epic of the west we traveled for some miles through what might be termed for the desert a forest of ironwoods many of the trees were twenty feet high and some of them nearly two feet in diameter of trunk kawea had a fancy for the young twigs so i gave him ten minutes to browse as there was no prospect of hay until we reached mecca wide spaces of this mesa were covered with black pebbles i had noticed in other localities they formed a sort of pavement and had the look of actually being burned black by the sun on breaking some of the pieces the inside color was always light red these stretches are one of the peculiar features of desert geology by reason of the uniformity of the fragments in size and color and the impression they give of having been rolled into place their polish also suggests friction under enormous weight as if red clay had been vitrified to a kind of flint by heat due to compression long before the ironwoods were left behind the sun had warmed to his work and taken his old place in my regard next the palin range slowly came into view the traveling became bad then worse finally heartbreaking each wash outdid the last in muscle demand and Kawea parted early with his morning gaiety. A few miles of this sort of thing has greater effectiveness in reducing mental excitement than any medical sedative I know. At last, the coxcombs opened up in the northwest, their serrated crags remarkable as ever, though robbed of their realistic red by the haze of heat and distance. Our objective, the Chuckawallas, flickered in long, forbidding rank on the southern horizon, seemingly unapproachable hours of laborious labor wrought no visible change in their obstinate contours half an hour was all i could allow at noon for rest and lunch 
the trees had long been passed and without a square foot of shade there was no inducement to lose time i found languid interest in watching the play of light on distant ranges and in wondering what legend might have been framed by the old greeks that could give glamour to this profound monotony when at last deeper tones of colour began to outline the canyons imagination came feebly to life but i felt as ever that the sole human attribute suggested by the desert is hopeless prosaic endurance never anything of the dramatic or stimulating all is tedious explicit bald a poet here would soon be gasping for want of air all the afternoon we marched steadily and at sundown came to a point where a track branched southwesterly toward the chuckawallas footnote the name comes from a species of lizard soromalus ater common in many parts of the desert but especially in this range it is harmless but ugly with much the look of a miniature alligator in footnote before turning into it i let kawea graze a few minutes on such scanty galleta grass as he might find while i lay motionless hoping to radiate off a little of the heat i had been absorbing particularly the last two hours when i had offered a frontal mark to the sun although there is little slackening of the heat until the moment of sunset thereafter the air cools rapidly so by the time we were ready to move there was a decent temperature while the mingled twilight and moonlight made a kind of bath of dusk in which my jaded frame was gently massaged with soothing psychologic touches the track dwindled fainter and fainter some storm had lately broken over the chuckawallas and spread a sheet of sand and gravel over the whole northern slope of the mountain before long we were wandering in a chaos of washes i dismounted and led kawea picking every foot of the way with utmost care yet often going far astray luckily there was a bright moon in its second quarter but at best it was guesswork half the time often i tied kawea and prospected far ahead before i could pick up the trail so much time was being lost in this fashion that i determined to cut loose and trust to luck the mountain wall loomed shadowy the canyons uncertainly marked by darker massing of gloom the route i had in mind followed a canyon that led straight through the mountain crossing by a pass at the head of which is a waterhole known as corn springs scanning the dark wall before me i made out a black slash that by its bearings should be the canyon i wanted it was doubtful yet probable and i resolved to take the chance where we spent the next hour or two i am not clear except that in a general way we were on the flanks of the chuckawallas occasionally i got sight anew of my landmark which i identified by a notch on the skyline otherwise i guided by the stars we pulled up at last in the bottom of a deep gully choked with a thicket of smoke trees out of this there was no way except by going back unless i could get kawea up a thirty-foot cliff i felt sure that once on the farther side we should have easy going though it was still doubtful whether the canyon we were heading for was the right one kawea was dead tired but game picking out the best-looking place i threw the bridle over the horn and led by the picket rope the bank was loose gravel and much too steep for any chance of stopping midway it must be made in one rush or not at all 
and failure meant a bad, perhaps serious fall for the horse. I clambered a little way up, gave him plenty of rope, and then shouted to him, at the same time scrambling ahead. The good little fellow came up with a run as if hand over hand, sending an avalanche of stuff to the bottom. I kept cheering and hauling him on, and in a few moments we were on the top. There, almost at the edge, was a well-marked track heading for the canyon. I take it to be a crosscut between Corn Springs and Grundyke's well. I now had leisure for the scenic features of my surroundings, which indeed were sufficiently weird. To the right was a mesa of the curious, mosaic-like character that I have described elsewhere. To the left was the deep barranca on the brink of which ran the track. The moon shone clearly down on the gleaming black floor, which might have been the pavement of some ruined city of antiquity. At intervals stood great ocotillos whose gaunt arms waved aloft in sinister contortions, while here and there a dead one lay bleached to the hue of bone. Looking down into the ravine, I could make out dark forms of Palo Verde and ironwood, or gray smoke trees like ghosts, outlined on the pallid sand at the bottom. The only sound was that of Kawea's hoofs hoarsely rattling the gravel of the track. Close ahead rose the black wall of the Chuckwallis, with here and there some bolt of rock taking questionable shape under the eerie touches of the moon. The total impression was freakish and unearthly. It was a place nor uninformed with fantasy and looks that threaten the profane. At last we passed into the canyon, and black cliffs rose high on either hand. The ground was again of sand, and in the moonlight every track of bird, snake, coyote, or bighorn showed sharp and clear. Small trees leaned out from crannies to which they clung by knotty roots, and from a cave came a stream of shadowy bats with click of tiny teeth and soundless flicker of wing. Somewhere near the mouth of the canyon is the Tanaha known as Granite Tanks, but it was unlikely that I could find it without daylight. We kept on, therefore, for two or three miles, coming an hour before midnight to a group of small palms and mesquites which gave notice of water. Among them was an old cabin, and nearby it a spring. We both drank deeply. It was eighteen hours since Kowea had had water, and the day had been hot, with unusually heavy traveling. I dealt him a good feed of barley and picketed him on the half-dry grass then ate a few cold mouthfuls, threw down my blankets, and almost literally fell asleep. Next day being Sunday, and forage sufficing, we took it easy in camp, reveling in shade of palm and willow and the proximity of plentiful water. In a walk down the canyon, I noticed near the spring a fine exhibition of Indian picture writings. The figures were scratched in firm outline on the faces of smooth slabs of rock, and stood out white against the red of the granite, as clearly as if done but a year or two ago. The canyon by daylight was picturesque, the high walls enclosing a gully-like passageway in which grew the usual assortment of mountain plants. Unlovely as these mainly are, one finds them interesting in proportion to their rarity, and stops to enjoy a twelve-foot smoke-tree or some weak outbreak of originality in an ocotillo as if they were the gnarly heroes of a forest. 
the presence of the house was explained by my coming upon an abandoned mine the place has evidently long been the haunt of prospectors on the door was roughly painted the invitation come in in camp wood and water free and above the fireplace was a square of pasteboard with hotel de corn springs set out in an attempt at the sign painter's art with further flights of fancy scrawled by departed guests one wall did duty as a register showing the names of visitors for several years past it appeared that the patronage of this select hostelry runs to a score or two per annum though this is only through the frequent recurrence of one or two regulars on whose prospecting beat it lies i was in no hurry to start next morning as i intended to make only a dozen miles or so to the red cloud mine at the other base of the mountains we left about eight o'clock finding a doubtful looking track leading west a mile brought us to the divide and to the end of anything that could be called a trail looking across to the south i could see what seemed to be a well-marked road climbing the mountainside here was another of those conundrums that plague the traveler in unmapped and little-known country was it a new route to dos palmas the point i was making for or did it merely lead to some mine of which i had not heard i had been told that my trail followed the main canyon yet there was no sign of travel that way this business of guessing when a mistake may spell disaster gradually gets on one's nerves, knocks out the fun, and finally puts one out of humor with desert travel. I tied Kauia and prospected ahead, picking up at last what seemed to be a continuation of the trail, though so broken and casual that it could only be followed by using extreme care. The storm that had washed over the northern slope of the mountains had obliterated the track here also. Another mile, and the trail, such as it was, turned into a side canyon toward the south. Disgusted, I resolved to trust my sense of direction and keep on westward. At the worst, I could return to Corn Springs and tomorrow try the other route. One has little mind for scenery under these circumstances, yet I could not fail to be struck by the intense desolation of the country we were traversing. I was in the heart of one of those scorched and scarified ranges that, even viewed through the ameliorating veil of distance, seems the last word of the gaunt and hopeless in physical nature. Rock, gravel, sand, and sky, all alike repressive and repellent, make up the total but for a few lean shrubs that clutch the blistering slabs of the mountain wall and the cacti that crouch among the boulders and reward every careless step with torture for all of sentient life a raven flies heavily by or some snake glides away or waits coiled and threatening in your path and if you overturn a scrap of stone centipede or scorpion will resent your violation of its solitude with instant menace of poison I sometimes wonder what kind of interpretation music might give of these landscapes. No doubt, something unique might be achieved by the modernists, some crude depiction of the obvious and sensational. But what I mean is the impression that the desert would make on the mind of a master. What the expression would be, we are not likely to know. For music seems to have lost self-control, 
and cannot wait to comprehend its theme before it is ready with some noisy but futile demonstration. After a while, my fading hope that we were on the right track was strengthened by coming on marks of another old mine. There was a puddle of water at the bottom of a prospect hole, but it was foul with decaying rats and lizards and quite unusable. We made our slow way down the gradually widening canyon, now and then on a sort of phantom trail, but usually picking a trackless way by guesswork and probabilities. It was the most worrying job of its kind that I met on the whole journey, and the water problem kept nudging at me like a pestering fiend. Noon came, and we should be nearing the Red Cloud Mine. There we should find water, and probably a caretaker, though the mine was not being worked. The canyon had opened into a delta of interlacing gullies, all rocky, choked with boulders, and crossed at short intervals by abrupt, slippery ledges which bothered Coahuila considerably. My fear was that we might come to some impassable place and be obliged to turn back. I had noted the landmarks carefully, but felt no certainty of being able to find the way through this wilderness to our last camp. Suddenly I spotted two tents in a side gully. We made for them hopefully, but there was no sign of recent habitation, nor any indication of water. It was the camp of some prospector who came once or twice a year, at times when the tanks would yield a supply. A trail led up the mountainside at the rear of the tents. This looked inviting, and we followed it cheerfully for two steep miles. Then it turned directly north, and I saw it was useless to go on, so with the loss of an hour of valuable daylight, we turned to our problem. Evening was coming on. I climbed a ridge and scanned the country. There was plenty of it, and all alike. The mine was no doubt somewhere within the scope of view, but I could not guess even whether it lay to north or south. To hunt for it in twenty square miles of wash and gully offered slight chance of success. I sat down and figured things over. We were now clear of the Chuckawallas. To the south was a ridge of hills that, as I reckoned, shut me off from sight of the Salton Sea. Ahead, a wide valley opened, running due west for many miles. If I could make southwest across country, I ought to come out into the Dos Palmas Road. But it was nearly dark, the country was a labyrinth of barrancas, the worst of all country to get lost in. The last traces of any trail had been left behind hours ago, and the specter of thirst was keeping me ever closer company. Even if I could find Corn Springs again, my problem would not be finally solved. On the whole, the open valley ahead was the best prospect. It led in the Cottonwood Springs direction, which ought to bring me into the road by which, two months before, I had come from Dale. We would go ahead and see what happened. We had not eaten for twelve hours, for I had been too much preoccupied to think of food. Kawea had not drunk, either, but I relied on the coolness of the night to refresh him. I gave him the last feed of barley, ate a scratch meal myself, and, with an encouraging word to my anxious companion, we started on. Daylight had gone, but the moon was well up and afforded aid and comfort. Except for the discomfort of doubt, I could have reveled in the charm of the scene. The uncouth chuckwallas rose dark behind and to my right. 
Moonlight whitened here and there the angle of some buttress, touching with charm of fancy the leagues of shadowy mountain. Our shadows marched before us, mingling with filmy pattern of creosote or skeleton of cactus or ocotillo. To the left, the horizon line was a procession of dusky shapes, shifting and vanishing like monsters seen in a nightmare. We had gone for a few miles in a sort of dogged muddle when wagon tracks appeared without warning, crosswise of our line of march. Whither they might lead in either direction, I had no idea, but they came as a vast relief. I made a rapid guess and chose the right-hand track. Another mile, and we ran into an unmistakable road and were heading westerly into the long valley. It was now only a question of Kawea's holding out. He was certainly very tired and necessarily very thirsty, while by my reckoning we were about twenty-five miles from water, whether we reached it at Cottonwood Springs or Schaefer's Well. But the coolness of the night would help us out, and Kawea, blessings on his tough little carcass, is pure Indian and would go till he dropped. As for myself, though I was muscle-weary to the limit, for I had been on foot all day, I felt I could travel forever in that refreshing temperature, and I still had a quart or so of water. All night we toiled along. Played out as Kawea was, whenever I stopped him he was anxious to go on, though with dragging step and muzzle almost touching his knees. I tried to buck him up with promises of the bully times we would have the coming winter. We'll chuck this everlasting clutter of saddlebags, blankets, and canteens, and just knock about and enjoy ourselves, eh, pony boy? It was clear how all-in he was when he failed to respond to my fraternal slap with humorous show of ill-temper such as flattened ears or playful pretense of a bite. Stars rose, stars set. The moon overtook, passed us, and sailed ahead as if rallying us on our despicable pace. I was drowsy but well content so long as the track kept on westward, for I knew it must bring us into some road that ran down to Mecca. So I whistled, dozed, and plodded on, cheering my plucky little nag and counting off the miles by the hours we traveled. Rabbits played about in the road, careless of our approach until we almost kicked them away. Now and again a sentimental coyote, maudlin with moonlight, vented his blighted affections in hysterical yelpings, and once half a dozen wild cattle rose suddenly out of the brush and gathered in a knot as if to stampede us. The sight of a man on foot is so strange to these roamers of the ranges that they are apt to be dangerous to such a person. The cowboy who looks them up twice or thrice a year must be thought a kind of centaur, while a pedestrian must seem a fragment of monstrosity. Slowly we neared the western opening, and new shapes appeared on the skyline. I tried to recall their outlines. Were those the eagles? Those the pintos? Those the cottonwoods? Could I have been mistaken in my impression of the lay of the land, and would the road, after all, turn north and lead us into some new pickle? Footnote. I learned afterwards that during the night I had passed, without knowing it, close to one place where I could have got water. This is a spot humorously known as the hayfields, where a thin growth of grass is used by cattlemen for pasturage, and water has been piped to a trough. In footnote. One o'clock, two o'clock, 
By my reckoning, we should be nearing the crossroad. The moon was nearly down. Poor Kawea plodded along, faint yet pursuing, his spirit as flat as his ears. Three o'clock and no hopeful sign. Then at last, something showed ahead beside the road. Could it be a signpost? It could, and it was one of those enduring metal posts that the good county of Riverside has placed at some of these main crossroads, and that every county whose territory runs into the desert should be compelled to provide on all routes of desert travel. I struck a match and eagerly examined the sign. Good luck. I had figured rightly. Five miles to the southwest was Schaefer's Well. Before turning the shoulder of the mountain, I stopped and looked back to the east. Down a long gallery whose walls rose dark and high on either hand, a splendid planet, Jupiter himself, with new-spangled ore flamed in the forehead of the morning sky. The firmament about him was silvering to the dawn. Toward me stretched a purple ribbon of sky glittering with a myriad points of gold. The dawn wind came as cool and pure as if it were the first breath of creation. The stillness was superb, the silence so absolute as to be startling. Could the central calm of the universe be holier, more inviolable than this? The thought of war with its ruin, chaos, and fury was an impossibility. One could not realize so vile a blasphemy against the vast peaks of nature. But the wild forms of the mountains showed that here, too, war had been waged against the old forces of repression, forever too stupid to know that to oppose freedom is to be blown sky-high. As I turned to move on, the moon was sinking behind the western mountain. I watched the soft light leave the plain, then pass up the shadowy walls like the rising of a silver mist. In these great, silent actions of nature, never so impressive as in desert solitude, one feels both the majesty and the beneficence of natural law, and realizes by such tranquility how trustworthy the universe must be. It was yet five miles to water, but the knowledge that it was at hand made them short. Kawea recognized his surroundings and livened up so much that I suddenly found myself desperately footsore, so got into the saddle and rode. Daylight came, the stars one by one went out, and Cactus and Ocotillo lost their wizard look and became again objects of commonplace dislike or cool botanical interest. A coyote hailing us from across the valley sounded like a friendly halloo. By the time we reached the entrance to the canyon, its white cliffs were cheerfully trimmed with rose, and before the sun was up, we were at Schaefer's Well. I seized the pump handle and worked it up and down affectionately. I think I never shook hands with such hearty feelings for anyone as I felt for Schaefer. As for Kawea, it would have been happiness to pump for him for hours, as indeed it seemed to me I did. Then I threw off saddlebags and saddle, washed him down, and began a hunt for forage. By the best of fortune, some freighter had lately fed his team and had left enough hay on the ground to make a very fair meal for a thrifty Indian pony. My companion fell to work at this while I threw down my blanket roll, followed it myself, and fell asleep in the action. It was twenty-one hours since we left Corn Springs, and we had traveled practically without a stop. 
In the afternoon, we made the remaining twelve miles down to Mecca. It seemed a foretaste of Elysium to get among artesian wells and patches of emerald alfalfa. To make the water run by turning a tap was a miracle, not less so the watermelon I captured at the store. Dates and massive clusters of crimson and yellow were ripening to super-Arabian excellence at the government experiment station, and ranchers' wives who had been inside to escape the heat were drifting back to spend the glorious winter of the desert in darning their men's summer arrears of hose. We took our way leisurely up the valley, culling here a lettuce, there a cucumber or tomato, and everywhere the juiciest of the Coachella's alfalfa. It was the last day of September when we reached Palm Springs, which we had left at the beginning of June. The four months of heat and dryness had left a psychological drought in my bones that I feared might be permanent and drive me into regrettable courses. Like Tufelsdirk, after so much roasting, I was what you might name calcined. However, the desert itself had the remedy up its sleeve and produced it a few weeks later, when I found myself flooded out of winter camp and subjected to a monumental sousing that brought me within measurable distance of drowning. A normal balance of constitution being thus restored, I could review fairly the summer's experience. Unpleasant details, once in the rear, soon became only amusing incidents in the general impression, and these, after all, even while in prospect, had made a part of the attraction. There remained the satisfaction of having accomplished an old, persistent project. Yet the satisfaction was not unqualified. I had wished to see the desert. Well, I had seen it. But my ambition had not been merely to view it as a new and interesting tract of geography. I wanted to know it more intrinsically than that. I hoped, by living with it night and day, to learn something, though it could be little at best, of its lonely heart, its subtle, uncomprehended spirit, its repellent yet enthralling beauty, its agelessness, changelessness, and weariness, its implacability, solemnity, and terror. The objective part of my plan I felt to be fairly accomplished. Not so the deeper side, however. The subjectivity of the desert is too rare a sort. Its effect upon the mind is too strange and complex to take form in any clear conception. Yet, since inevitably one strives to realize one's experiences, I ask myself again, into what single impression does a desert render itself? What one sensation remains most strongly on the mind? The mountains, the sea, even the vast and changeful sky have each some predominant genius for those who love the fair features of our earth. What sentiment does the desert yield by which it may be linked with human emotions? What analogy exists by which we may come into touch with it? The answer must be, there is none. At every point the desert meets us with a negative. Like the Sphinx, there is no answer to its riddle. It is the fascination of the unknowable in the challenge of some old unbroken secret that the charm of the desert consists. And the charm is undying, for the secret is secrecy. End of chapter 20